I'm uh, really glad to be uh, back in the book of Exodus. It's a really exciting book, isn't it? I don't know if uh, you kind of recall some of the stuff that we looked at last time in Exodus from that slightly scary video that we watched. Um, I won't recount it all, but it's a, it's a really exciting book of, of pharaohs and, and plagues and genocide and uh, um, bushes that burn and, uh, but don't burn up, or that are on fire but don't burn up, and um, yeah, plagues, did I say that already? And, and the sea uh, being parted in two and, and, and the people passing through on dry land. It's a really action-packed book. Um, but for many of us, in our heads, that's where Exodus ends. <laughs> we, we kind of think of Exodus as of all of that bit of the story, um, the people are free, they're on the other side of the Red Sea, job done. But the reality is, that actually only takes us up to chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And anyone know how many chapters there are in the book of Exodus? No cheating? 44. Close. Any advances on 44? I heard 33, somewhere between those two. 40. There's 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. Um, and that's only the first 15. So what about the rest of it? Um, so while, while the kind of rescue from Egypt is miraculous and incredible and a sign of God's salvation and rescue and redemption, um, it's actually not the whole point of the book of Exodus. It's not really what Exodus is all about. The people were rescued from the land of Egypt for a reason. Now, part of that reason was so that they could be brought into the land of their own, the land that was promised to Abraham. But we don't get to that land until the book of Joshua, a few books on in the Bible. There was another reason why they were rescued from Egypt, one that's more significant in the book of Exodus, and that's this. They were rescued so that they could enjoy being in relationship with God. That was the goal of their rescue. It was rela- it's all about relationship. How do we see this in the book of Exodus? Well, um, in the rem- re- remaining part of the book, you have Mount Sinai. That, that point where the people receive the, the commandments from God. They get instructions about what it means for them to live in a covenant relationship with God. It's about relationship. And then, um, if you've ever read the book of Exodus yourself, you might remember that. Then, after that, there's kind of chapter after chapter after chapter, all about how they should build a tent. (laughs) And you think, what's this all about? It seems kind of boring, it seems repetitive, but in reality, that should be the most exciting part of Exodus. Because that's what the book's all about. They're rescued from Egypt in order to have relationship with God, And that tent called the tabernacle symbolizes that reality. The tabernacle is a sign to the people and to the nations around them that the people of Israel have relationship with God. He dwells amongst them. That's what that's all about. That is the goal of the book of Exodus. That's where Exodus is heading. But that's not actually what we're going to focus on today. Um, So the people of Israel have gone from being slaves in Egypt to being free, heading on their way to their own land. In the book of Exodus, there's going to be, like I've said, some significant moments to demonstrate the incredible relationship they have with God. But here's the thing. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. You see, it took, in the end, a matter of days to get the people of Israel 
out of Egypt, but it will take a lifetime to get the mentality of, of slavery and persecution and hopelessness out of the people. Before they get to the land that they've been promised, they'll wander in the desert for 40 years trying to learn these lessons. Despite the fact that they're going to see um, incredible things that show how special they are to God, despite that, time and time again, we'll see some deeply ingrained beliefs and attitudes that they've brought with them from Egypt as they come to the fore. And so as they leave the Red Sea and as they head towards Canaan, the Promised Land, we're going to see God start to unpick that mindset, those attitudes, that lack of trust in him through the events that they go through. We're going to see him working in them to take the Egypt mindset out of them. And we'll start looking at that in our passages today. But before we kind of look at, look at those passages, let me just draw some lines of parallel between their experience then and our experience now. In the New Testament, that's the, the part of the Bible um, written about Jesus and then after Jesus. In the New Testament, we see the time of the church, the period of history that we are living in now. And there are some striking similarities between the time of uh, the people wandering in the desert, between them leaving uh, Egypt and arriving at the Promised Land, there's the striking similarities between that period of their history and the time of the church, the time that we're living in now. For us, it's the time that is after our rescue, after the rescue of the cross, but before we reach our Promised Land, the new creation. And so New Testament writers compare our time in history to the experience of Israel in between the time of their rescue and before they reached the promised land. Can you see that similarity? After the rescue, but before the promised land. For us, after our rescue from sin at the cross, but before we get to the new creation. For them, after their rescue from Egypt, but before they reach the promised land. It's that in-between period. And these two periods have lots of similarities, but one of them is the idea that God uses the things that we go through in life to help take Egypt out of us. Now, obviously, it's not Egypt for us, but if you're a Christian here today, you've been rescued from sin. That enemy is defeated, it's gone, and yet, and yet, many of the unhelpful or even wrong habits and attitudes and beliefs that you had before you were a Christian linger on. They wear you down. And just like God did with Israel, God is using and will use the experiences that you face in life to expose those things, to change our hearts and minds. God wants to take Egypt out of us. He wants to take us from seeing ourselves as slaves to seeing ourselves as free. He wants to take us from fear to trust, from unbelief to faith. And he, he'll use the circumstances of our lives to do that. 
Now, we're going to look at two incidents today from um, this period of history, both about um, the Israelites' response to extreme thirst as they run out of water in the desert. Let's take a look at what God was teaching them, and we'll see what he wants to say to us. Turn with me to um, Exodus chapter 15. Uh, It's on page 73 of the church Bible, so Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to read from verse 22. That's under the heading, uh, The Waters of Marah and Elim. Exodus chapter 15. Let me read from verse 22. It says this. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on any of you the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So this is the first of these two incidences that we're going to look at. The Israelites have just come out of the Red Sea, walked through it on dry land, the water beside them, and they've landed in a desert. So they crack on with their journey. They're trudging through the desert. Day one, they're on a high. They're they're living off the experience of, of walking through the Red Sea. Day two they start to realise that they've not had a drink <laughs> for, for a day. Um, they're, they're feeling pretty thirsty. Day three, they're parched and they're not happy. And then they come across some water. You can imagine the feeling, can't you? Their mouths are like sandpaper. They rush over to the water. They take a huge mouthful and they spit it straight back out. It's bitter. It's undrinkable. Now, this idea of the water being bitter um, is really underlined by the writer. Look at verse 23. Um, It says, when they came to Mara. Now, Mara is the name of the place where the water was, and that name itself means bitter. That's what that word means. And so, to the original readers, here's how this would sound. It would sound like this. When they came to bitter, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Bitter. That's what it would have sounded like. Bitter. Three times in three lines. Uh, The writer really underlines that for one simple reason. It's because the people are bitter. Look at verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? The people have a problem of bitterness. Now, here in the UK, we, we love a grumble, don't we? We love, we love to have a moan and moan about the weather. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too rainy, it hasn't rained enough. We love a moan about, about the traffic, uh, about people who jump the queue, about the noisy neighbours, about the, the colleague who doesn't do the washing up at work. Whatever it is, we just love to have a moan. Um, but when we see the Israelites grumbling in verse 24... 
this, that isn't just that kind of low-level annoyance that we have going on in the background most of the time as Brits. There's something deeper going on. This is bitterness. We know it's bitterness from the way that it, it, it emphasizes that word bitter in the story, in the passage. And we know it when we track their history through the rest of the, 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 the chapters leading on from here. The Israelites are bitter. One definition that I found of bitterness is this. It said, bitterness is that state of mind that willfully holds on to angry feelings, ready to take offence, able to break out in anger at any moment. I'll say that again. Bitterness is that state of mind that willfully holds on to angry feelings, ready to take offence, able to break out in anger at any moment. Israel are bitter. And in one sense... If anyone has the right to be bitter, it's Israel. Think about what they've been through recently. Many of the people who find themselves in this desert without water have the scars of that genocide that took place. Every baby Israelite boy being thrown into the Nile under the orders of Pharaoh. Many of them will bear those scars. They've been slaves in Egypt, mistreated by their slave masters, made to work grueling hours, made to build bricks without being provided with the raw materials that they needed to build them. Cruel enslavement. They've had a, a long, tough time. It's been a lot. So on one level, you can understand their bitterness. But here's the thing. They've also had plenty of evidence that God can be trusted to provide for their needs. Remember all those plagues that God sent to convince Pharaoh to let the people go? Remember the Passover? And remember, just three days earlier, three days, they were walking on a dry path through the middle of the Red Sea. Remember how God had piled up the water either side of them? to ensure their safe passage three days earlier. Despite all of that, despite God's extravagant demonstrations of how he can provide for them in their needs, they've chosen not to turn to him when they have this need for water. They've chosen to hold on to bitterness instead. They've chosen to, to cling to the expectation that hard things are just going to come to them, just like they have before. They've, they've chosen to be grumble and, and to, bitter, to be bitter about their circumstances. To not turn to God, to not ask him to meet their needs, but to grumble to Moses instead. They are a bitter people. But <laughs> before we're too quick to point the finger at them, let's just examine our own hearts for a moment. You see, it's easy for us to kind of stand back with this bird's eye view. It's easy for us to look at the, the bigger picture in their story of, of God's faithful dealings with, with them and to kind of tut-tut at them for not doing um, the right thing, for not trusting God. And yet, aren't we often the same? If you're a Christian here today, it's true that there are many, many evidences throughout history and in your own life of God's faithfulness to you. There are many examples you can point to of how God can be trusted to be with you and to meet your needs. That's true for you if you're a Christian, but it's also true 
for many of us that when in a moment of hardship, our response is often just like the Israelites. We grumble. Instead of uh, remembering all of the reasons why we can trust God in the middle of this hardship, instead we remember the difficulties we faced in the past and, and we fatalistically expect the worst. We're bitter. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. But here's the thing. It is not a mistake that the people of Israel are here in this moment. It's not a mistake that the people are faced with this problem. God has allowed it. He's allowed it to happen to expose their hearts, to let them see where bitterness remains in their hearts so that he can heal them from it. And the same is true for us uh, in the troubles that we face as Christians. We don't face hard times. We don't face suffering by accident. No, while, while God doesn't cause them, God wants to, us to use the challenges that we face in our lives for our good. He wants to use the, the troubles that we face to expose our hearts, to, to lay bare the areas of unbelief, of, uh, of, of those kind of attitudes that hang over. He wants us to see those habits that we have that don't belong to people who've been set free from sin who've been recreated as children of God. He wants us to, he wants us to experience the, the liberating freedom that comes from knowing that God can be trusted, whatever is going on from life. He wants us to believe that. He wants us to see that. He wants to use the hardships we face to help us to learn that. These challenges ultimately are allowed by God because of his kindness to us. When the Israelites grumbled, God didn't kind of think, oh, and spit his dummy out and, and go off in a huff because it's been just three days since he rescued them. Why aren't they trusting him now? How can they treat him like this? He could have been really angry with them. That would have been totally fair. After all he'd done from it, for them, they treat him like this. But instead of doing that, look what he did with verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. That happened not because that wood was special. That happened because God was doing a miracle there. God provided for the Israelites. He exposed their hearts. He allowed them to see the bitterness that was in there. And then he proved to them yet again that they can trust him to meet their needs. He was trying to undo that bitterness. And then he underlined that truth that he can meet their needs. Just look at verse 27. Straight after this, what happened? Then, verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Did you see that? It was as though God was shouting to them with a megaphone, I can meet your needs. You can trust me. He was saying, turn to me when you're thirsty. Turn to me when you're lacking. Turn to me when your life is hard and I can provide for you in those moments in abundance. 12 springs, 70 palm trees. God was saying, I can meet your needs. Trust me. 
when life gets tough, when challenges present themselves to Israel, when hardship comes, God has proven to them that they don't need to, to look back at all they've been through and just be bitter and grumble. He's proven to them that he can be trusted to meet their needs. He's proven that in abundance. And the same is true for us. God can be trusted when we're facing hardship. He can meet our needs. Now, do Israel learn that? Has Egypt been taken out of them? Sadly not. In the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, another hardship comes. It's a couple of months down the line, and this time they're short of food. Not water this time, but food. But they don't make the connection that God could provide water, and so of course he can provide food for them. And instead they grumble again. We're going to skip over chapter 16, though, and we're going to have a a look at a little account in chapter 17 as well. Just turn there with me, and um, I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand a staff with you, which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's like deja vu, isn't it? (laughs) Once again, no water pretty much identical situation to before and have they learned their lesson have they overcome their bitterness and grumbling do they trust God the answer as I'm sure you saw is a resounding no yet again they grumble at Moses but actually this time they go even further verse 2 says that they quarreled with Moses Now, in the original language, this means more than what we mean when we use that word quarrel. I think when we use the word quarrel, it sounds a little bit like a bit of a squabble, a bit of a kind of tit-for-tat argument. But the meaning here is actually a lot stronger than that. It's more like a legal challenge. They're bringing Moses up against the court of justice. They want him tried. They want him proven guilty of wrongdoing. And specifically, their accusation is seen at the end of verse 3. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses understands this. Moses understands the stakes. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, They are almost ready to stone me. They're putting Moses on trial and the sentence is death. Actually, it's even more than that, because it's not just Moses they're putting on trial, it's God as well. Did you see that at the end of verse 2, where it says, Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? 
And then at the end of the passage where he sums it up, verse 7, you see that again. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? Once again, the people were faced with a hardship, faced with thirst. Once again, they should have taken their needs to the Lord, but once again, instead, they grumble, uh, but this time they've gone further. They, they've blamed Moses, and they've pointed their finger up at God. This is your fault, God, they've said. You're not really for us. You're not really with us. How could you bring us here? You are guilty, they're saying to God. This is blasphemy. And yet, it's so familiar, isn't it? How many times when faced with suffering in this world, have you heard point people point the finger of blame at God? How could God allow this suffering? It's what, what we do, isn't it? It's what people do all the time. We are quick to blame God when things go wrong, but very slow to give him the credit when things go well in life. Well, God listens to them, and he takes up their charge. He says, you want a trial? Okay, I'll give you a trial. He brings together Moses and the elders. Now, in those days, that was kind of the witnesses in the court of law. Getting all those together was what you needed to do for a trial. So he gets, the, he gets Moses, he gets the, the elders together, and then he brings them out before the people. And what's more, he tells Moses to bring his staff. That staff that Moses used to strike the Nile, to turn it to blood in judgment of Pharaoh. The very same staff. In older translations, it was what was called the rod. The rod of justice. It's very clear what is happening here. The verdict is in. Judgment is coming. The court is gathered. The witnesses are in place. The rod of judgment is about to come down. There will be blood. And you can imagine how the people might be feeling in this moment. As they see, Moses goes off and he talks to God, and then they see him coming back with the witnesses with him, with his staff. And I'm sure their hearts sank. We've done it this time. We've threatened to stone God's prophet. We have blamed God himself. Yet again, we failed to trust him. We've done it. And let's be clear here, they deserve judgment. God has been so generous, so patient with them, so kind in giving them, meeting their needs over and over again despite their bitterness. And this is how they've treated him. They deserve blood. So, Moses and the elders come out, Moses with his staff, and they walk towards the people. And then they walk straight past them. Look at verse five and six. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now again, the full weight of what's going on here is a little bit lost in translation. Um, did you see that little phrase? I will stand there before you 
by the rock. Well, that phrase that's translated by the rock can be translated in three ways. It can be translated by the rock, it can be translated on the rock, and it can be translated in the rock. And in the rock sounds a little bit odd, and I think that's why the translators don't often go for it. But actually, I think that's exactly what should be said here. Here's what God says to Moses. He says, go to the people. Go to this blasphemous people who deserve judgment. Go to them with the elders. Go to them with the rod of judgment, and there will be blood, but judgment will not come on them, even though they deserve it. Walk straight past them. I'll stand in that rock, and you should strike that rock with your judgment. Strike me, he's saying, instead of them. I'll take the judgment that they deserve. And that's just what Moses does. The rod of judgment comes down. He strikes the rock. God takes the blow of justice and living water, life-giving water, flows from the rock to the people. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reflects on this passage um, to the church in Corinth. Just turn with me to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, and we'll see what he says about this incident. You get a page, let me know. 1151 is what it is. Page 1151, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So here Paul is recounting some of the kind of events from the book of Exodus. And let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll read from verse 1 under that subheading, Warnings from Israel's History. Here's what it says. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. He's talking about when they went through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. The rock there that gave water to the Israelites in the desert was Christ. They got physical water, but they got spiritual water as well. God was in the rock, and the rock was struck. The rock bore the judgment so that they didn't have to. It was pointing forward to Jesus. It was pointing forward to when Jesus, the rock, on the cross was struck with the judgment of God so that the sinful people, so that you and me don't need to. We are just like the Israelites. We, we blame God. We are bitter. We're ungrateful. We, we sin. We rebel against God. We do it repeatedly. And like the Israelites, that rod of judgment should come down on us. But it doesn't. God passes us by. The rod of judgment, instead of coming on us, came down on Jesus. He faced the judgment that we deserve. He was struck and water came from his side. Water and blood flowed from his side. And in that was life. Life-giving water, spiritual life, forgiveness and hope. He was struck instead of us so that the life-giving spirit could flow out on all of us. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. Now that is true in one sense. Our attitudes, our unbelief 
do keep rearing their ugly heads in our lives. But God is patient. He, he forgives us again and again, just like he did the Israelites. And he patiently pursues change in us. He, he faces the consequence of our bitterness, of our sin, of our rebellion. He is struck so that we can be forgiven. And then he keeps pursuing us. He keeps teaching us. He keeps transforming us. He keeps proving to us that he is worthy of our trust. Jesus is the rock who was struck for you. He took your penalty. He took your judgment. And so the question that each one of us here today needs to answer is this. Will you drink from him? Will you, in faith, receive the life that he offers? 